Welcome to another episode of In the Belly of the Beast. I'm Todd Lawrence. In this episode, I spend time talking with Janelle Austin, the lead caretaker at George Floyd Square in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's been 21 months since George Floyd was murdered by officers of the Minneapolis Police Department. During that time, Janelle has emerged as an important voice around care, remembrance, and transformation in our community. And George Floyd Square has been one of the most important spaces where that work is taking place. Janelle, as we will hear, has been there from the very beginning, caring for the space and the offerings that people leave there. It's a spontaneous memorial, communally constructed on the site of a lynching, an ever-changing space of pain, anger, and mourning, but also a protest, resistance, community, love, liberation, and healing. I wanted to talk with Janelle for the show because I've been struck by her thoughtfulness in talking about community healing and transformation. Janelle is one of many people doing vital work in our community in the months after the murder of George Floyd, but hers is the voice that I keep returning to to help me understand how something as simple as caring for the items that people produce in response to pain and suffering is a necessary act of activism and resistance, that those offerings and that space can show us what healing and transformation can look like, and that there is transformative power and love in memorialization. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to In the Belly of the Beast. I am Todd Lawrence, and I am here today uh, with a show. It's going to be an interview with uh, Janelle Austin, um, who I'm going to interview uh, introduce in just a second. We are really, really, really excited to have uh, Janelle here with the show. It's just me today. Nobody else is here, but that's kind of like by design by me because I kind of wanted to bogart the time. I don't want everybody else getting to ask questions, just me. So I'm super, super excited to have Janelle here today. And just to introduce her, I'm going to read a little bit about her. Really, really interesting background and um, what she's been doing over the last couple of years and even beyond that. So she's the executive director and co-founder of the George Floyd Global Memorial and the lead caretaker of the memorials at George Floyd Square. She guides a team of volunteers to stand in the unique space of preservation and protest. She began tending to the memorial during the first week of the 2020 uprising as a form of social resistance and self-care. Every day the memorial looked different, and every day she and others would tend to both the new and old offerings um, so that the story could be preserved. Janelle earned a BA in uh, Christian Ministries from Messiah College, an MDIV, MDiv in Ethics, and MA in Intercultural Studies from Fuller Theological Seminary. She's also creator of a Racial Agency Initiative, a racial justice leadership coaching company. Um, she consults and speaks nationwide on various topics as they intersect with race in America. She is the activist in residence for the Center of Work and Democracy at Arizona State University and a 2022 Leonard I. Berman um, Foundation Fellow. In 2021, she received the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference Innovation Hub Grant the Community Champion Award from the Urban League, Twin Cities, and the Women of Courage Award from the Emmett Till Legacy Foundation in honor of Mamie Till Mobley. She's a native resident of Minneapolis. She grew up blocks away from the intersection of 38th and Chicago in Bryant neighborhood and joyfully serves alongside her community in the ongoing fight for racial justice. And that is one of the things that we want to talk about today. I want to start off um, just by asking you if you could talk about that important role as caretaker 
uh, lead caretaker at George Floyd Square, what that entails, what it means, what is the importance of it, and what has been your experience of it over these, I mean, it's been 20, 20 months. So um, I wonder if you could talk about that just a little bit. Absolutely. Uh, and we are in a space where that 20 months actually means something because we are now the longest standing occupation in, in the history of this country within 20 months. So that is, that is no small feat to occupy city streets. Uh, as a caretaker, I started caretaking out of my need to find a way to protest in a way that would not cause me ongoing trauma and ongoing harm. I had been participating in marches, and then I was in that march on the uh, I-35 bridge. When that truck came through, I remember looking up, seeing a truck, and seeing bodies on the windshield. I thought they had got hit by the truck. I later found out through news media that they had jumped on. But that entire day um, and experience just triggered all my trauma. And I woke up the next morning on June 1st and said, I'm going to tend to the memorial as my formal protest because I know that memorials can be disruptive. And I know that the actual work of just picking up trash and straightening up flowers can also be healing for my own body. I mean, there's just something about mundane work when you need to, when you need to heal, like doing the stuff that's just repetitive has its way of naturally healing the body. And so that's what I did. I, I live a couple short blocks away from the memorial, born and raised. My family home is there. And so I would get up at six o'clock in the morning because I'm a morning person. It wasn't any kind of extra dedication. I naturally wake up early and I would tend to the memorial while really not many people were there. And it allowed me the opportunity to be able to witness what people were laying down and uh, the, the sacredness of what people were laying down. We were not called caretakers until like a couple weeks in. Somebody in the community started calling us caretakers. I think somebody made a sign um, about everything was uh, being tended to by neighbors who were caretaking the space. So just to make sure that people coming from the outside weren't like asking questions or just coming in and, and trying to do things. And so a neighbor made a sign about people caretaking. And then out of that, people started calling us caretakers. And uh, because I was so committed and showing up daily, eventually people in the community started calling me lead caretaker. So I, I didn't like self-title. <laughs> this, the names organically grew. But I think that's what makes this role so important to me and so valuable to me. It's because the people in my community saw the work and saw that there was a need for that work to be sustained and bestowed on me the responsibility to continue to do that work. And I remember when I had to come to like a decision, it was like two months in that I had to make a decision for myself. Like, was I going to stop this work and go back to my life as I knew it? Or was I going to continue? 
And I remember discerning and saying to myself, there's just so much work to do. I can't stop now because I didn't know who would continue the work because there were days when it was just me or just me and Paul. I mean, there were, there were weeks on end when there were literally just two of us tending to the space. Now I can boast that there's like a roster of 50 caretakers, but that was not always the case. And I think that this work, I came to identify as someone who lives in the balance of preservation and protest. What does it mean to hold our stories and keep our stories and ensure that our stories are not colonized and commandeered and to allow those stories to also uh, be a powerful form of protest? I, I think so many people struggled with this idea of this particular kind of work being protest. And I tried to convince folks along the way to no avail. <laughs> but, but I knew and I understood that it was. Why, did they, why do you think they resisted that? Because I wasn't marching. <laughs> I mean, I think people have a very narrow definition sometimes of ideas and words, protest being one of them. And one of the ways that I would work to try to expand the imagination of protesters is by redefining protest as maybe some people understood it. So the language that I use for protest is disrupting business as usual to signal to someone that there is something wrong that needs to be made right. And so out of that, I believe that people can protest through so many different forms, through so many different mediums, through so many different opportunities uh, where people have leverage to access their own privilege is a, it's an opportunity to protest. Can you disrupt business as usual to signal that there is something wrong that needs to be made right, period. And so that's what the, the memorial is doing. And through tending to the memorial, that's what we were al- allowing to be continued. But protest through reclamation of space. Oh, let me say this, and then I'll let you ask your next question. And I will do this to you. I am I'm a storyteller, and so I will jump from idea to idea. But simply this, that being able to think about this protest through the lens of reclamation of place and space. Since Trayvon Martin, we're about to come up on the 10-year anniversary of Trayvon Martin, February 26th. And that is when the Black Lives Matter hashtag was created. That hashtag was a social media movement that meant that people did not have to be in Florida to participate in this kind of protest language. Like, could you understand that Black Lives Matter? Could you stand in solidarity? Could you send that hashtag? Could you... Uh, march in your own cities, march in your own community, do solidarity marches. Could you, like there, there's all these ways to practice solidarity that did not require one to be in Florida. But the memorial at George Floyd Square requires a physical presence at 38th and Chicago to actually participate in laying something down, right? And that idea of reclaiming place and reclaiming space is a whole nother level to this movement of black liberation because racism began with stripping people from place and space, right? So it's not just 
let's undo people's ideas and let's let's undo the idea of racism but let's actually undo the physical geographical implications of racism by reclaiming land can you talk a little bit so for anybody who has never been to George Floyd Square or doesn't know what we're talking about I, I hope that's not there's no one out there that that's the case but there probably is can you describe what George Floyd Square, what it looked like, you know, at the beginning? Like it's it's had all these different sort of iterations because it changes all the time. And this is one of the things that's really fascinating about it. Like I'm a folklorist and, you know, we call this a spontaneous shrine, right? Or a spontaneous memorial and that it's a living memorial, right? And it, it changes over time, right? And you have seen that up close every day for all of these years. So I'm wondering if you could maybe just describe um, you know, what it was like at the beginning. How did you talk, like, what did you call it at the beginning? How did it change over time? How did that space, you know, did it get bigger? And we know now that, of course, the city has reopened the streets, you know, so for a long time, it was, the intersection was blocked off. It, you could walk there, not worry about cars or anything like that. So just wonder if you could talk about the space and it's how it's such a unique space. It has been, and it's changed so much over these 20 months. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, a living memorial. That is exactly what we called it in the beginning. Because every day I would go and the memorial looked different. Like guaranteed every morning things were shifted, things were moved. Even large installations got relocated by the people. Um, as an introvert, I would intentionally stay away from uh, what became known as George Floyd Square before it was just 38th in Chicago. It still is 38th in Chicago. So it's, it's a place that has multiple names, which is okay culturally because black people, we have multiple names, right? <laughs> we, we are given our government name, then we are given our nicknames. You go to school, you get another name. Like, so allowing places to have multiple names is very much so a part of black culture. And so this intersection, which is, which is 38th in Chicago, probably about a week into the uprising kind of got renamed as George Floyd Square as an act of protest. And that name stuck and people kind of ran with it. And so there's this, at the beginning, the memorial was small and it, it was like anybody's memorial, right? When you see someone who suffers a, a tragic car accident and you'll see a memorial build up on the side of the street. Or I lived in communities where Someone was killed by the police and there was a memorial that grew on the sidewalk, on the side of the road, and that was normal. But I think what changed in this time, first of all, COVID was a huge factor in the sheer volume of people who showed up, right? Because nobody had to go to work, um, nobody had to go to school, um, nobody had after school activities or programming, nobody had anything to watch on TV, like sports, everything was canceled because of COVID. COVID was the ultimate culture cancel. And people, not only that, but because people were forced to be restricted into their own homes, especially your extroverts, uh, people were itching to get out. And so you had this huge volume of people, influx of people that just flooded this intersection. There was literally thousands of people. I can see um, the billboards of the square from my home. And whenever something was going down, like you could hear them clearly as if they were in our backyard. 
And again, as an introvert, I would not go in the afternoons of like mornings are, are my time when there's less people, except to be able to kind of zip through and see what were the people using, what resources are people using. And then I'd go to the store at night, uh, buy resources to replenish. And then in the morning, I would come and I'd set those out so that people could utilize that. But people were going through marches. And then when they're finished with their marches, they'd come to Churchwood Square and then they'd lay their protest sign down in the street or they'd lay balloons or teddy bears or, or blankets or people would lay a part of their family story or history there. People would lay rocks and flowers and bouquets. I could tell the difference of socioeconomic status because some people would lay a dollar store synthetic rose and other people would lay an organic bouquet from Whole Foods. And so you could see that people were coming with different kinds of people. I noticed that um, in the morning, you would find a lot of your non-Black folks. And then in the afternoons and evenings, you would find like hundreds and hundreds of Black folks were showing up. You would see the difference between your athletes showing up in the morning, joggers, uh, walkers, bikers in the morning. And then um, in the afternoon, a lot of musicians showing up um, and playing and dancing. But all of those are offerings, right? It's it's not just the actual artifacts that we're seeing. Now, we started calling everything offerings because the people, week one, were naming it a sacred space. We're naming it a sacred place. It was originally blocked off by human bodies. And then people started using their vehicles to block the streets. Uh, and then I think a couple of neighbors made a call to the city. And the city on June 2nd, decided to roll through with like these big giant Jersey barriers to lock off. So essentially from Elliott Avenue to Columbus Avenue, which is renamed by the community as Little Curl. Um, so that's two blocks east to west. And then north to south from 37th Street to 39th Street. So two blocks north and south, like the long blocks in, in Minneapolis. And because those streets were blocked off and because people were grieving, I mean, like people were showing up there to cook, to grill. There was mutual aid happening everywhere. People were donating clothes and food and, and toiletries and supplies. And so 38th and Chicago became this like home base for the movement, for the protest. There was community-led security, community-led medics, community-led everything. It just became like uh, a, a gigantic family reunion <laughs> in the streets. People took sidewalk chalk and started etching their narratives in the street. People took paint and started etching their narratives in the street on the sidewalks. Like everything became a canvas for storytelling. Everything became a canvas for grief. Um, and so even to this day, there will be people who say, oh, the square looks messy. Well, I also know that there's a history of graffiti art not being socially acceptable, right? And so people look at graffiti art and they think it's scandalous and they don't think it's beautiful. So you come to George Floyd Square, you will see a lot of graffiti art. Some by skilled artists, some, you know, by beginners. <laughs> people who are just expressing their emotions, right? I call everything creative expressions of pain and hope because that's where we were, that is where we are. And people still come to this space to do one of five things. I say they're looking for community, liberation, public grief, pilgrimage, or protest. Any given day, you will find somebody there, I guarantee you, 
who's present for one of those five things. Again, community, liberation, public grief, pilgrimage, and protest. And so two blocks by two blocks is this geographical space. You've got a former gas station on the north uh, west corner, which is now called the People's Way, uh, which community meetings started happening daily there every morning and evening on June 15th, 2020, and continue to happen there. You have a church on the southwest corner, uh, Worldwide Outreach for Christ Ministries, that's been there for like nearly 40 years. Um, you have a mixed-use building with a, a restaurant on the bottom, and uh, apartments on top on the southeast corner, and then you have cut foods on the northeast corner. Um, and then along with several businesses that kind of go down the street. And so this intersection became a hub um, for community building. It became a hub for mutual aid. It became a, a hub for public grief. It became a hub for public healing. It became a hub for public storytelling. And and all of that within it is embodied the memorial. Now, since the murder of George Floyd, other people in our community have died. And so what you'll also see is added memorials to the stories. Why? Because we believe that Black Life Matters. And if Black Life Matters, then we have to tell the stories of all Black life. And the ways in which that Black life is lost needs to be acknowledged, needs to be upheld, needs to be remembered. So whether somebody died because of domestic abuse, let's talk about that. Let's tell that story. If somebody died of COVID, let's talk about that. Let's tell that story. If somebody died because of a homicide, let's talk about that. Let's tell that story. And let's tell about the injustice of, of, of homicide deaths uh, within the community. But let's also tell about the injustice of the ways in which police stations actually handle those things. <laughs> let's talk about the fact that we had a homicide that was written up in the police report as a self-inflicted wound when we had multiple neighbors witness a homicide, right? Um, so let's talk about that layer of injustice. And so what we see at George Floyd Square is a kind of fight for Black liberation that is deeply inclusive of our complex story, of our complex narrative. And the push for justice is not just a push for Derek Chauvin and friends to be convicted um, and put in jail. It is a push for a kind of holistic reparations and restorations and restorative justice that comes from our government to say that George Floyd was lynched by the Minneapolis Police Department. Therefore, the city is responsible for this man's death. Not only that, but the city is also responsible for the trauma that was inflicted on our community thereafter. And the city is responsible for the conditions that caused that lynching to take place. And so therefore, how do we push for more holistic justice that would not cause lynchings to take place anymore in our backyard? And that is the occupation of George Floyd Square, right? This is why this land is occupied, because there's a deep unsettling from the lack of justice, of holistic justice. And the reclamation of land needs to be a part of that process of understanding how do we move forward. Okay, I have like a million questions. I mean, first, I want to just ask, 
Is it fair to say then, you know, that George Floyd Square in a way became a kind of model for not just the kind of, you know, communal sort of coming together um, with other people and sort of mourning and everything, but also for things having to do with justice, things having to do with equity, having to do, you know, with uh, responding to hunger, responding to, you know, displacement, those sorts of things. Like those things were happening there. I mean, that's one of the things that always struck me was I had never really been to a spontaneous memorial where there was social justice stuff happening right there, right? Like there was, like you said, if you came there and you needed clothes, there was a place you could get clothes. If you came there and you needed food, there was a place you could get food. I think it was probably one of the earliest places in the Twin Cities where you could get a vaccination, a COVID vaccination was at George Floyd Square. Like there were people there giving vaccinations, right? So was that space a kind of model and does it continue to be a kind of model for what we'd like our community to really be? I believe so. And I would even say what we want our nation to really be. I believe that community is the antidote to racism. I was just talking to a friend yesterday who I'm I'm co-writing a book with. We started writing this book back in like 2018, 2019, right? And everything got kind of put on pause because of me. (laughs) And, um, which actually happened to be a good thing because we gave ourselves time to reflect on what we wrote before George Floyd was lynched and then being able to see how are we using that content. But one of the things that I told her yesterday as we were meeting was that it has been 400 years plus. Nobody has the answer to how we are going to undo racism in this country. If somebody tells you that they've, they've got the answer, they know the solution, they're lying. <laughs> they're lying. And they're probably trying to sell something <laughs> and capitalize off of it. Because if there was a, a single magic bullet, we would have been able to accomplish it by now. And so I think what we see in George Floyd Square is a microcosm of testing. Can we imagine a community beyond policing, right? We're not saying without policing. We're saying beyond policing. Can we get back to doing life with each other? Can we get back to being responsible for each other? Can we get back to actually knowing the status of our neighbors and where and how they need help? Can we get back to not fearing our neighbors but loving our neighbors? Can we get back to saying hello? Can we get back to meeting each other's needs without having a grudge (laughs) that we help somebody or that they ask more times than we ask? Can we get back to that space where we humble ourselves to ask to get a need met as opposed to feeling like, well, I have a job and I get paid and therefore I'm going to go to the store and buy it firsthand. These are things that I struggle with myself and to be able to humble myself to ask somebody for help rather than drive to Walgreens to pick something up that would cost me twice as much than what somebody would give it to me for. Why not ask a neighbor? Like, can we get back to rather than looking at a kid as suspicious to saying, Hey, who, who are you? Where are you from? Where's your family? Where are your people at? (laughs) Do you need some food? Can you come over? I mean, that's how Elijah McClain died, right? Because someone looked out their window and saw a black kid with a ski mask and called the police because he saw someone suspicious, as opposed to seeing a black kid with a ski mask and saying hello. 
how are you? Um, are you all right? Anything I can help you with today? Right? And so this kind of communal commitment to be present for each other, we have a community group chat of over 200 people on it, right? And so that means, and, and this was necessary because the intersection of 38th and Chicago had four different neighborhoods. So there was no central neighborhood organization that we could go to that would actually have the, the networks for, for everybody who's connected to George Floyd Square. Because each neighborhood organization would only have the networks for their blocks. But on top of that, these neighborhoods are a lot larger than George Floyd Square. So if you go to the far corner of the other end of the neighborhood, they're not going to have any feelings about this space. So we had to create our own neighborhood networks that would bring together four different neighborhoods, two different state senators, two different uh, boards for city council, and uh, communicate to each other. When a car accident happens, someone can look out their window and say, hey, there's a car accident. And then we respond as neighbors, who's available? Um, how can we think about the ways in which we can support and help one another? I mean, there was actually a car accident that I responded to because I actually witnessed, I saw I was parked outside about to meet somebody at George Floyd Square. And then I looked in my rearview mirror because I heard a crash and I saw these cars spinning. And so I get out my car and I just start running towards them. And uh, we, myself and a couple of the neighbors, ended up navigating that entire car crash and making sure that everyone was safe and keeping the kids who were at fault from running, right? To say, you need to be held responsible. This is our community. We actually hold people responsible <laughs> for what you do. Um, and so being able to say, can we begin to practice the kind of society in which we want to live? So if we are, if people are politically advocating for an undoing of the current model of society, what's going to replace it? Well, we need to start practicing what we want to be replaced with, as opposed to just imagining it and thinking that it will work. So that's why George Floyd Square matters. Um, yes, it is a microcosm of what things can become, but I will say people cannot just watch us and think that it's going to magically happen for them. When people come to George Floyd Square and they say, what can I do? I say, go home and practice community. Get to know your neighbors. Someone said, can I donate clothes to your people's closet? I said, how about donate clothes to the community in your neighborhood? So how do we start to get people to imagine how to start building community in their own neighborhood? Because that is the start of a new kind of society that we see for ourselves. Yeah, I mean, it's it so strikes me that what you're describing is caretaking and radical love, right? I mean, a kind of connectedness that you have to build. And the, the most difficult part of that is like building or creating the infrastructure through which that can happen. So just thinking about the person saying like, can I donate the clothes? It would be easy for me to get clothes and bring them to you because you already have the infrastructure built, right? But to build the infrastructure in my own neighborhood so that I can practice that closer to where I am and transform the space where I living, I'm living, that's more difficult, right? That's harder. I speak from experience. Like I'm sort of the kind of person who is a little bit averse to that. Like I'm sometimes like reluctant to talk to people. And I, I can see in my own neighborhood where wouldn't this be better if we knew each other and we talked to each other 
And rather than feel suspicious of each other, we knew each other and knew that that person's not really up to anything. You know, the, the things that you're talking about, right? And that this could really work, not just in one space in one little city, but it can work across this country and even around the world. I, don't, I wanted to just ask you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I thought you were going to say something. Well, I, I, will, say, I will say this. Mm-hmm. We say at George Floyd Square, bring your gifts to the square. So what you see is people having particular gifts and skill sets and they're leaning into it. So like the people's closet is actually cared for by someone who has a fashion design degree and who is a fashion designer, right? And, and, and that's what they feel called to. Um, the meet on the streets is actually kept going by someone who's a local high school teacher who teaches for a living. And so they have no problem showing up to continue to educate and teach the community, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the greenhouse and the, the physical structure of the people's closet was redesigned and built by people who are contractors. Um, and they have that skill set and they brought their gifts to the square. And so I think the first step is always to first assess of what am I good at and what do I naturally do and how do I lean my natural gifts there. Before we even get there, uh, one of the things that happened was my block 38th in Oakland uh, showed up strong. And people were like, who is this block and why are they so solid? <laughs> because about three years prior to the lynching of George Floyd, we started a Facebook group for our block. And anybody who's anybody who's ever lived on the block of 38th in Chicago was welcome to be in this Facebook group. And we stayed in community through that. So whether you lived out of state, we could still send messages to each other and communicate to each other if someone had need. So we started small with our block. And so when this incident happened, we were already organized as a block. We already knew each other as a block. And it was just a matter of saying, okay, how do we plug in? Like one of the things they did for me was, and I didn't know this until afterwards, they created a separate block group chat, but they did not include me in it because they were like, Janelle is caring so much already. We do not want to bother her with all the little things. So if something major is happening, what we'll do is they have another channel. So one person would be showing up to the meetings and it would be their responsibility, not mine, to communicate it to the block and make sure that everybody on 38th and Oakland knew about it. Um, so that people could show up and like, like my block, like that's how much my people love each other. (laughs) But, but it starts with something so simple as that to say, how do I just get to know the people who live within a block of me and what are our skill sets? One of my um, caretakers, actually, she's now the fellow at the George Floyd Global Memorial Archive and Sacred Spaces fellow. During the uprising, I held a session for my block on like how to leverage your skills for racial justice. She approached me and said, how can I help? I'm like, well, what do you do? She's like, I'm an archivist. I'm like, I got you. Can you help with archiving these offerings and conservation? She said, absolutely. She showed up during the uprising and continued to volunteer. And then when the fellowship came along, she applied for it and stood out heads and tails above the rest in terms of an applicant because of skill sets I didn't even know she had. I'm like, who is this person with this Mary Poppins purse of archiving? (laughs) (laughs) She also had the narrative of living 18 years solid in this community, right? 
And so, but that was someone who said, like, here are my skill sets. I met her on my block. She lives five houses down from me. And how can I bring my skill sets to this movement and thrive in, in my way, in a way that will help the community thrive? So, so the, the, those are the ways to think about it. Start small. Don't start by commandeering a bus shelter. <laughs> That's a fun idea. That's not the best way to start. Small. I got you. So I want to ask you, you know, speaking of archiving, and this kind of gets back to the first question I asked you, you know, I would love for people to understand what has been involved in the caretaking and archiving of the objects that have been brought to George Floyd Square. It seems like a massive, massive operation to me. And uh, things have got to be first collected and and preserved, like maybe, you know, like, can, can you just talk about that? And then the importance of preserving, documenting, preserving, and archiving. Because, I mean, why not just sort of clean the, the space up every day and just get rid of the flowers that are, you know, dead and get rid of this little bits of paper that don't, you know, they're not new today. Why archive it? Why keep all of that stuff? And what's involved in that? So when we first started attending to the memorial to help make the operations consistent, I started creating guidelines around how we would tend to the space. And I started doing that because I was bringing my gifts to the square. I'm a, back in the day, I was a director of operations. So it's like, how do we make caretaking consistent between all of the shifts? And so we came up with several guidelines, but at the end of the day, the two that stood the test of time was simply this. Everything is somebody's offering, therefore nothing is thrown away. And two, the people are more sacred than the memorial itself. When we start with this is a sacred place, that means something. And me having a background in divinity and theology meant instantly we can't just throw something away. And so we, when people laid things down, we started calling them offerings, which I didn't know that that wasn't common across the country. I think people like will call them tributes, they'll call them artifacts. They'll call them what they are, flowers and balloons and teddy bears, but they don't necessarily call them offerings. But we did because it was a sacred site. And my church background said when people come to sacred places, they bring an offering. You don't throw offerings away. Uh, that I mean, there's like a violation, I think, of some kind of natural law <laughs> when you throw an offering away, which there were people who attempted to. And we went dumpster diving and we went and got them back just out of sheer instinct of you can't throw somebody else's offering away. That's wrong. <laughs> I have an ethics degree. <laughs> That's wrong. And so we started storing everything in the bell shelter and we didn't know what we were going to do with it. We honestly had no clue what to do with it. We just knew that it, it couldn't exist in the memorial because the memorial was like overflowing. Like offerings were crawling up the wall. People were walking over everything. It was like becoming a, a, a safety hazard, right? With people tripping over stuff. So we just started bundling them up and then we started to reclaim the bus shelter as a storage space. And then that's when the Pillsbury House and Theater came and opened their doors to us. And then we had an indoor place to be able to, to start storing. And then that's when the Midwest Arts Conservation Center stepped in and was like, you're not just going to store these. We've got to do a proper conservation protocol. And I was like, there's what? <laughs> <laughs> like, what is this that you speak of? 
And so we had to learn conservation, which I call street conservation. And so we are starting this whole operations indoor. So we had outdoor caretaking, we had indoor caretaking. And we had to start making judgment calls of when something had lived this life of protest outdoors, then we bring it indoors to go through a conservation process with the intent to redisplay it back to the community because it's, a, it's an object of protest and it needs to continue to protest. But it can't continue to protest outside. So now we have to be creative to say, how can we like re-exhibit these pieces indoors? So when we did our first pop-up gallery, uh, we had about 200 pieces. Now, mind you, that sounds like a lot, but we've estimated that we've got somewhere around 3,000. So and that's just indoors. That does not include what's outside. So um, with the pop-up exhibit, they, uh, my team wanted to do like a grand opening. And I was like, no. I like, we could do maybe a soft opening, but not a grand opening. And they're like, why not? And I said, because it's an extension of the memorial that already exists. This is not different. Um, what I don't want to be the narrative is that we went around taking people's offerings and then decided that we were going to, ta-da, make a display of what other people did. Like, we have to be extremely careful to make sure that people understand that this is an extension of what already exists, that this is a, their story. This is the memorial that the people built. And so even you mentioned earlier about that language of like spontaneous memorials, I think the city kept using the language of a makeshift memorial, and I would push back, and i say, it is not a makeshift memorial. This is the memorial that the people built. I gave a lecture at ASU back in August about why it is so important to understand the power of this memorial that the people built, especially when we look at memorials in the context of our country, oftentimes being commissioned by government agencies, a fountain, a statue, a monument, like we're going to blow up the side of a mountain to put a giant white man's face on it, right? Like <laughs> um, these monuments are commissioned by government entities to tell a particular story, right? The fact that the people elevated the story of George Floyd, a man who is not a martyr, a man who's I mean, he was not a superhero by any stretch of the imagination. A man who was just like an everyday guy, just trying to make it through life, um, who got caught under the knee of a MPD officer who had an intent to kill him that day. This is an everyday guy. He's not a hero. He's not someone that you would say, hey, kids, let's go and learn about George Floyd so we can become like him one day. <laughs> like, that's not George Floyd. And even that argument that was happening during 2020, if you remember in the media, when people were saying, stop making George Floyd to be a martyr. Like, he's, he's not a hero. Like, no, he's not. Which makes this memorial that much more spectacular. That the people of this government, the people of the United States of America, would say, we want to remember somebody who looks like us. Somebody who reminds us of us, right? And we want to elevate him, not because he was special and held a bunch of degrees or won or lost a ton of wars. <laughs> like, this is an everyday guy who got caught in one of the most brutal, unjust, murderous acts 
in the year of 2020. So the fact that the people said, we want to remember him, that matters. And so therefore, our work as caretakers means that we have to uphold the story that the people are telling. We have a moral and ethical obligation to ensure that their protests, that their words are not curated to tell a different story, um, that don't put into a certain light certain characters in the narrative um, as opposed to others. And then I'm also challenged when, <laughs> when I see certain protest signs that I'm like, I know a white person made this protest sign. Like, I really don't want to re-exhibit it. I, I really don't. I'm like, you know what? This is not your movement. But then I have to say, well, wait a minute. More than black people protested. So I have to hold myself to that ethical responsibility to say that voice has to be included in this limited exhibit so that people really understand the fullness of the protest, right? That matters. We were almost out of time. So I really wanted to ask you this last question, which... What is time? (laughs) (laughs) If it was up to me, I would go on for three hours, but they, my partners told me, you know, keep it under an hour. So, you know. But um, this is really c- connected to your last answer because you're, you know, you're talking about the sort of ethics and the complexity of sort of re-exhibiting offerings that you have collected and, and archived. You know, you're the executive director of George Floyd Global Memorial. And I assume or I want maybe I wonder about like what is the sort of plan going forward for these offerings um, for the memorial itself, like, is there an idea to like, create a permanent building somewhere to house these things, these offerings? And then how do you keep that connected to the original memorial? You know, I'm thinking about, you know, other memorials like the I, I worked, uh, did some research on the Flight 93 Memorial in, in Shanksville in Pennsylvania. And that went from a um, spontaneous memorial to now an actual like brick and mortar Memorial with a uh, a museum operated by the Parks Department, right? And it's way different than what it was when it first started out. People just bringing their offerings there to to express their grief and to recognize people who've been killed and all that stuff. And there was good and bad to that at the beginning that that memorial. But there's a way in which this kind of brick and mortar museum kind of sterilizes what the original memorial was. It seems very disconnected from the offerings that people brought, they've got like a little sort of, you know, kind of display like this is what people brought. And then it's all this other stuff, you know. So I'm wondering if you all are thinking about that as you work towards something more permanent, you know, to to mark what happened and to mark the response to what happened and to, you know, keep alive this response that people had to somebody being lynched in their neighborhood, you know. So I'm just wondering if you're thinking about that and what it could look like. We've been thinking about this for 20 months. And I, I feel like we just need to do a two-part series, right? <laughs> this, I mean, this is an important question. You were on that email chain. There was like 20 people on that email chain when we were trying to figure out what do we do with all these artifacts. And one of the things that became extremely clear was no existing institution had the space to hold everything. And that is part of the reason why the George Floyd Global Memorial exists to this day. Um, because the consensus was we want to be able to keep everything together. Uh, we want to be able to have the, the home of everything be the exact same place. So yes, a brick and mortar will have to be built. 
And ideally, the brick and mortar, um, the, the, the heart of Ms. Angela Harrelson, who's George Floyd's aunt, who lives here in Minnesota, and Ms. Paris Stevens, who's George Floyd's first cousin, who also, both of them are on our board, is that that memorial would exist at 38th in Chicago. That's their heart. My heart is that 38th in Chicago would continue to be blocked off to any kind of vehicle traffic, that it would be a place of pilgrimage for people throughout this world. On all seven continents, people marched and people protested. And people are still laying things down in the memorial. I was just in Pennsylvania earlier this week for a speaking engagement, and an art professor at the university I was at gave me um, a Madonna, a miniature Madonna that he had uh, welded with metal. And he said, can you do me a favor? Can you take this? I made this for the memorial. Can you place it in the memorial? Um, and so that like, there is still a connection with people across the country who want to be able to pilgrim to this space. And with vehicle traffic going through, that, that disrupts. That is so disruptive to a pilgrimage. Um, and we have to acknowledge that this is an extremely historical moment in time. And so what does it look like to reimagine this intersection as a place of pilgrimage for the world, right? So that's, that's my heart right there. Then to be able to build a brick-and-mortar place, and I can tell you that the experience will be a rememory experience in the tradition of Toni Morrison. Because we're black, 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 everything, right? Okay. So when we're thinking about people saying, oh, we got to build, build a museum, we pause and we say, wait a minute. Actually, a friend of mine from L.A. who's a, a Ph.D. student in literature was like, don't build a museum, build a rememory in the language of Toni Morrison from the book Beloved. And the rememory is like you walk into it. It's like I've been here before. Mm-hmm. I've lived this before in another life. Hold up. And so that that is our plan. Our plan is to build a rememory. And so, and I t- when we did our first pop-up exhibit, that was like a, a taste of what we could do. And I remember they first put up like a hundred pieces and I walked in and like, Janelle, what do you think? Like people were like bright eyed and excited and everything was perfectly spaced. And I was like, "Mm, no. (laughs) And then everyone like became crushed. (laughs) Um, And they're like, well, what's wrong with it? I was like, it's not enough. It's not enough pieces. I was like, if you were there during the uprising, you know that there were offerings everywhere. Like they were like above us. They were crawling up the walls. They were in the streets. This experience has to cause people to remember that. No clean line. Someone someone tried to put a protest sign in a frame. I was like, what are you doing? Get it out the frame. And they're like, what? I was like, this is a protest. Who frames a protest? <laughs> um, like, it's a very different feel because these are protest pieces, first and foremost. This is grief, first and foremost. And grief is messy and protest is messy. And so whatever it is that we build in the future, I can guarantee you because people who are there will be present in speaking to how this is, story is, is retold and uplifting the stories of the people, that that experience will be able to be relived and is not going to feel like the Getty, it's not going to feel like Mia, it's not going to feel like the Walker, it's not going to feel like the National Museum of Art like or Smithsonian. It's, it's not going to feel like that. It's going to feel like the uprising of 2020. And 
uh, because the people need to know and understand the truth of what happened and the story and how the people grieved and how the people protest. And out of those narratives and stories will our nation heal. Out of this 10-part chorus of justice will that song resonate in our souls as we continue to remember and re-experience Will we be forced to reckon with our history and forced to reckon with our present and forced to decide what will our future be? And so, yes, there will be a brick and mortar, but it's not going to be clean lines. I can guarantee you that. And I do hope that this memorial continues to exist of the living memorial component where people can continue to have a place where they go to find community liberation, public grief, pilgrimage, and protest. My dearest desire is that from this day forward on to posterity, when people come to 38th in Chicago, they can lay down flowers and rocks and teddy bears and photos and that understand that this space is big enough to hold all of our grief. Whether you're grieving for George Floyd or you're grieving for another, there is a list of 168 names on that morning passage. There's over 200 names in the Say Their Names installation. There are names that are spray painted and painted and etched across the street. There are images of service members. There is a bassinet of a lady whose child died in infancy. Like There is so much grief in that memorial because people needed a place to be able to grieve in community. And I hope against hope that this intersection will continue to be that for the world and in the pursuit of community liberation, public grief, pilgrimage, and protest. And we'll have the brick and mortar to be able to hold and preserve the story for a hundred years to come. And it's the story that the people, of the memorial that the people built, and we get to tell our own story. Thank you so much, Janelle Austin, the amazing Janelle Austin. I'm so happy that I got the chance to talk to you today. This was an amazing, amazing conversation. I knew it was going to be easy that I would just lob some questions at you and let you spin your brilliance. So I just really appreciate you taking the time. This is Todd Lawrence. This has been another episode of In the Belly of the Beast. Um, and we'll have another episode up in a couple of few weeks or months. Just wait for us. We'll get new episodes up. But when this one's going to be good. Thank you so much, Janelle. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. 